Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome back to City of God. Today on the podcast, we have my dear friend, colleague in the faith, Kosti Hinn. He is executive pastor of discipleship at Redeemer Bible Church in Gilbert, Arizona, the Phoenix area. Uh, he has recently written a, an excellent book called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, uh, published with Zondervan, that has gone far and wide and has helped a ton of people thus far. Um, Costi is a, a trusted and rising voice in the younger evangelical generation. As I said, he's a friend of mine. Costi, it is so good to have you on City of God today. Good to be with you, Owen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you making the time. In this podcast, I want to talk with you about your fascinating background that you have uh, unfurled for us in writing, uh, both in book form and for Christianity Today and other outlets. I'm sure some of my listeners have heard about your story, your background, uh, the nephew of, of Benny Hinn, but I would love for you to walk us through that in the podcast today. So if you could just start us out, uh, where are you born, where are you from? And how did you get into the prosperity world? Yeah, so I was born in Orlando, Florida in 1984. I'm 35 years old. And two years after being born in Orlando, I moved, my family moved, my parents moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, where I grew up. My dad planted a church there called Vancouver Christian Center. And at the time of it planting, around 1987, it exploded. And the reason it exploded is he took a model of ministry that he had learned uh, from my Uncle Benny, who we were a part of in Orlando at the Orlando Christian Center, where my Uncle Benny was pastoring and put a church there. Um, They literally had, you know, thousands upon thousands of people. My dad worked there. Other uncles worked there as well. And... Uh, my uncle wasn't the the global traveling evangelist just yet, like we see, or the the, the faith healer. Um, he would call himself more of a, a healing evangelist, and so it wasn't that yet. Okay. It was in the mid to late '80s, and but he was still doing healing. The emphasis was on healing, prosperity. It was one of your typical mega churches with the prosperity gospel approach. Okay. And so my dad went and planted the same thing up in Canada, and started um, a school called the Signs and Wonders School of Ministry, where you would teach people how to uh, do healings and do miracles, and of course, how to uh, teach people or guide them into health and wealth. And so you would use the gifts of the Spirit and the Gospel, of course, to have the perfect life or to live the American or for us, the Canadian dream. (laughs) And so I grew up in that all my life. And Uh, We would still travel with my uncle because right around the 90s, my uncle said that God told him to give the church away, his church, his megachurch, and devote himself completely to traveling around the world and taking the healing gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. And key emphasis there on the healing gospel. And so uh, he, he started traveling, and he would employ my dad and other family members in contract work to travel with him, and they would basically sell uh, the gospel, so salvation and healing as a package deal. And so just like you could confess Jesus as Lord and be saved, you could confess your healing and be healed. And the issue 
if you don't get saved, of course, is what? You don't have faith. If you don't have faith in Christ, you cannot be saved. Well, the same issue is attached to healing. If you're not getting your healing, the problem is your faith. You just don't have enough faith. Mm -hmm. And so that was a belief that was ingrained in me. And all of that uh, is more of the teaching or theological approach. When you look at the practical or the lifestyle view of all of this, uh, we were traveling on Gulfstream jets. We were driving Bentleys, Beamers, Ferraris, Hummers, uh, Benzes, everything you could imagine. Nicest hotels in the world is where we stayed. Best restaurants in the world is where we ate. And it was like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, that old show. Uh, probably a little outdated for some of us, but there used to be this show where you'd get a glimpse of the lifestyle of the rich and famous. It was just immaculate. But for, for our generation now, it would be like doing ministry, um, you know, at the level or the global attention level of like an Osteen, but with the lifestyle of LeBron, you know, that kind of yes. approach. And so we were as a, as a family or as a ministry, uh, with the nonprofits and different organizations bringing in upwards of $88 million a year. That was, that was the, that was the peak. And that I remember the number that I remember as, as a peak. Um, so that's significant. And it wasn't as though we were taking, we were telling people, you know, 95% of every dollar you give is going towards, you know, orphanages and sending pastors to seminary and building schools and uh, giving away free books or, or what have you, or putting on, you know, this or that for the gospel. It was, it was driven towards the lifestyle. And so, wow. you know, multiple homes and massive salaries, being able to make 30, 40, 50 K in a weekend. Um, that's the approach that we had to life ministry. And really we would say, you know, that's what you get when you preach the gospel and sacrifice. And here's the line, Owen, that we would use. We'd say, um, you know, salvation is free, but the anointing is costly. Mm. And what we would mean by that, the anointing is the favor and special use of God is going to cost you. So guess what it costed? It costed your family being around your kids, winning at home. It costed my uncle his marriage for a little while. It costed many people in the ministry their marriages. Uh, wives left husbands because husbands were always gone. It didn't matter how much money was made or or what global globe trotting you got to do. Uh, we watched as the family was put on the back burner, and the anointing was put front and center. You know, it's the anointing of God on my life, and so everybody get out of my way. Mm-hmm. Ministry first, and so that was the approach. Uh, theologically from again a financial lifestyle standpoint and then i would say um one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is we believed and were were taught that this is the price of real ministry if you want to be like jesus you got to give it all up and that never meant giving up money it meant up giving up your family and all the priorities that are in the bible that we should have wow Wow, that is truly a remarkable story. I've heard you tell it before. I've read it uh, in different accounts of yours. uh, And yet, every time I hear uh, this narrative, this true narrative of your background as uh, a hen uh, and and a member of this prosperity gospel centerpiece, I'm freshly taken aback and and freshly shocked um, in different ways. What was your specific role as you grew up and, and entered the ministry 
and what would your role have been, let's say, even into today, if you had traveled along uh, this path that you're, you're lining out, that you were raised in? Where would you be today, do you think, in the prosperity world? Yeah, that's a great question. So at the time, I was about 18 years old. I had grown up in it, rode on the coattails of it, and was going to go to college, play baseball, et cetera. Um, and I had big dreams, big goals, wanted to play professional baseball, wanted this, wanted that. And so uh, one of the things that we taught in the prosperity gospel and believed was if you want something from God, you got to do something for him. So uh, you put him first or you sow a seed. For me, I sowed a seed, quote, uh, in my uncle's ministry by giving up going to play college baseball right away and going to college even and working for him. So I devoted my life to the man of God. And it's very much like in the Old Testament when Elisha wants the double portion from Elijah, right? Yes. That is the way that we taught that and viewed it. So you want the anointing of a man of God? You want the blessing of God on your life even? Well, serve the man of God. Serve the anointed. Follow him. His mantle will fall on you, and the Lord will bless you. So, um, a very. by the way, that's very poor, poor exegesis and poor hermeneutics when you're talking about Elijah and Elisha and, and all that. But mm-hmm. nevertheless... Uh, you know, in principle, there's maybe some helpful things there about serving the Lord uh, and following faithful men, and no doubt the Lord can raise you up through that. But we took it a whole different level. So I give up college, baseball, all that, and I'm a catcher. I'm assisting my uncle, and um, that's really the role is sort of follow, serve, um, be a part, be his assistant, handle money, handle uh, travel, all of that. And this is a rite of passage. As you serve the man of God, the Lord will raise you up into a man of God. And so there were other young guys that if I named them right now, you would say, whoa, that's like a famous so-and-so, or he's a famous prosperity preacher, or hey, I've seen that guy on Preachers and Sneakers. If I named the other young men, Mm -hmm. you would know exactly who they are. They're heavily influential in today's world. They also worked for my Uncle Benny, and they were part of that rite of passage. And so Basically, if I were still in that, um, in a Middle Eastern family, when you're the oldest son in the, or the oldest in the next generation, you're by definition sort of the heir apparent. And so um, in our family, my uncle, my dad, many others used to prophesy over me that I am the next in line. And they would prophesy that I am going to do greater things than even my uncle, my father, that the mantle that was on my uncle will fall on me, that it'll be a double portion anointing and that I'm going to go, I'm going to travel the world or be around the world um, healing and seeing miracles and seeing the supernatural in ways that eclipses even my uncle, my father and the family. And so there was this pressure. uh, And, and early on, I would even say this, this, um, you could call it an arrogance, uh, though I, I didn't walk in it that heavily, but in my mind, I was set. So you could say a mental arrogance in my mind. If you would have said, what are you going to do one day Costi? or how are you going to live or how are you going to afford to live or what's your career? I would pipe back very quickly. What are you talking about? My future is already set. God already has this. I'm going to be this. I'm going to do this. This was prophesied over me. So I'm going to be that. And that's what it is. And so I was very confident wow. in wow. being the next. Uh, and eventually um, as you know, the Lord just 
shattered all of that and rewrote the real story. <laughs> yeah, but that's really important. And um, I find it fascinating. I think a lot of people listening to this are, before we get to your gospel shattering, <laughs> I love that phrase, that's, that's a big, huge deal. That, um, and I'm not even sure I, I remembered that, Costi, to be honest. I'm guessing others won't as well, that you were the next one up. You weren't just in the ministry. You were serving as a catcher, as you said, on stage in your uncle's crusades and, and other venues. You were actually going to be in the eyes of your family, uh, your, your uncle being fan, fantastically famous globally. You were going to actually exceed him in his ministry. That is remarkable as a mantle upon your shoulders. Yeah, and when you attach it to the prophetic and how seriously we took every word from these, these quote-unquote men of God, um, it's one thing to say, here's what I think you'll be, and here's what I really feel like could happen, and speculation. It was prophesied, and so, again, I would take that to the bank, man. I mean, it, mm -hmm. again, I would sit up at night. I, would, I just had, there was a knowing like a normal 18, 19 year old kid just go into a restaurant at any given time in my life, watch a basketball game, a hockey game, driving to the store in the file, in my mind, like secure, done, yes. set, like my future file. It was not just, oh yeah, this might happen. It was, this was prophesied. It's as good as done. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was, um, that was something I lived with every day, just being certain of. That is a very heady reality. It's not just that you were in the warp and woof of this movement. You were cradled, uh, you know, to this point in your life. But um, again, sure. uh, I just I'm I'm thinking about the lived experience, uh, not just the the teaching and the ideas, but the lived experience mm -hmm. of being told and prophesied over within this theological worldview, which of course I don't I don't share. But at that point in your life, you are hearing. Uh, truly spectacular things about your future, uh, which makes your turnaround, your your conversion in a biblical word, all the more dramatic. Uh, sketch for us what happened in your life to turn you from this path that you have thus far laid out to the one you are on today, following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Yeah, God, God in his kindness just began to send certain voices into my life that were, were helpful, and they started to put cracks in the dam of my theology, if you will. So uh, little moments, I'd have conversations with people, and, and they would say, so, so I have a question for you. Do you really believe this, this, or that? And I, I would listen, or I would even respond, because the approach was so, uh, it was non-attack, it was not polemic. It was just, hey, I have a question for you. Have you ever thought about it? And so I could name three people in my life specifically, besides the, the, the wonderings that I had, like every young person could or would, when the news attacked my family or they showed evidence on a, on a TV screen and you couldn't argue with like the paperwork uh, that they would put up on the screen or the investigation. Those things would, would, would definitely get in my head and I would wonder. But then we would have things to cope. Like we would say, oh, that's just the devil attacking us. Or, um, hey, nobody's perfect, man. Everybody sins. Everybody makes mistakes. We're no different. All of a sudden now we were human. Or, you know, I, 
I can't answer all that. God, suddenly God was sovereign. You know, God's sovereign. He's in charge of healing. We're not, we're not saying we could heal anyone. You know, you would, you would deflect into a lot of PR spinning. Yes. So that did something that made me wonder, but the ultimate things that God used, I would say I could boil them down into three things, three people. Number one, my college coach at Dallas Baptist university, uh, the people there, the, the teachers and professors, uh, my coach, they would talk about God's word. They would, my coach would always talk about the sovereignty of God. And he would say, guys, don't worry about your future. Don't worry about getting drafted. God is sovereign. And he would quote Proverbs 21, one and say, the heart of a king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns them wherever he wishes. He controls the kings of the world. He can control scouts. God is sovereign. And I would remember being like, what in the world? Like how, God is in control of everything. Well, how do I get that to work for me? Like, how do I get sovereignty to, to, to make what I want happen? You know, because I was so used to, like, what is this guy talking about? I, I control things with my faith, my giving. Like, and he drove at that time. It was great. Uh, he drove a white Toyota Camry, like an old Camry. And so, and I'm driving a Hummer on 22s with TVs in the screen, like a you know, 21 year old kid in college. So I'm thinking, like, what does this guy know about about getting God to do stuff? Like, I I know what I'm doing. So I had a Brightly watch. Like, I, you know, I'm a kid in college, and I got a watch that wow. we would go out to clubs in Dallas and run into, like, NFL players. We were at a, a club one time, and Tony Romo and Kerry Underwood were there. And, I like, guys are pulling my wrist and looking at my watch. I'll never forget it. So a guy, I won't name him, but one of the Cowboys players pulls his watch off his wrist, flips it over, and shows me, the limited edition on it and he pulls mine off and he wore my watch and I wore his for uh, like the rest of that night. Oh my and like that. So, so then I'm going though to practice and this dude from, you know, some Bible church in Dallas is telling me about the sovereignty of God with his white Camry and, and his, you know, homeschooled kids. Like what, who, who, who are you? Like I was arrogant, Owen. I was like, what do you know about life? And you're so put together, and you're so Baptist. <laughs> that was that was the way I viewed it. And then it messed with me. It messed with me so bad. I was thinking, whatever. So I brushed it off, but God would use it later because the other two things. I meet my now wife Christine, and uh, we're you know dating and courting and moving towards marriage. And my family starts telling her like, you got to speak in tongues to be saved. If you're not speaking in tongues, you're, you, you're not saved. You're not spirit filled. So I'm using a little bit of my Baptist education at that time. Cause I've graduated from DBU by this point. I'm going, hold on, hold on. Everybody gets the spirit when they get saved guys, like chill out. You know, she, if she, she could speak in tongues at some point, but right. She still has the spirit. You know, I'd argue my little baby theology from new Testament survey. Yes. And, but I, but I still didn't know anything beyond that. I, would just, I was just trying to defend her so I could marry her and they would be nice. And so we all end up kind of getting along. But over time, this girl starts asking big questions. So if the Bible says this, your family says that, how does that work? Um, so eventually, I'm trying to fast track this. We're doing ministry with my family and she's just devastated, can't speak in tongues. We end up in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30, Paul, of course, being rhetorical, not all do they, and he's listing gifts of the Spirit, like tongues and others. Not all are going to do these things. And I, I remember looking at that text with her and going, oh my goodness, I, I think we're off the hook. Like, you don't have to speak in tongues to be saved. Uh, 
wow. And so we start going down and wondering, like, going down the line, what else do we believe? Or as my parents or family or uncles or whoever um, taught that it's false or not in line with the plain reading of the text. Well, there were a lot of other things. And so eventually the Lord opens the door. I'm trying to help my dad's church. I'm trying to make it all work. And this guy says to me, a good buddy of mine says, man, you got to stop trying to be your, your dad's hero, your uncle's hero, your family's hero. And you got to start being your wife's hero, your future wife's hero. You're about to marry this girl. She's your first ministry. And I never heard that before. Hmm. Like what? No, no ministry is, is first family comes second and they all understand that the calling of God is number one. And he was, you know, he helped me understand that that's really a logical fallacy that the calling of God is not, there's not, you, you can't separate all those. In fact, God calls a man of God to win at home as part of ministry. Not, there's not like an order like this first, that second, this third, this one. It's all of it. It's the character of a man, the husband of one wife, a manager of his household. So this guy just takes me to task surgically. And I was blown away. Never heard that in my life. And so the Lord opens the door for me to go become the youth pastor at that church. And it wasn't like a Bible church. It was seeker driven. It was very much, a, you know, tractional, but they were good guys that wanted to, to, to grow closer to the Lord. And they had some good principles like mm-hmm. about life and ministry. Yes. So it was the perfect inroad the Lord would use. I was not going to get hired at your church, Owen. Nobody was going to invite me into pastor, you know, at some established church to be like, who is this heretic? It was the perfect next step that the Lord used. And, and that's how God works sometimes. He'll use these, these things that we might look at and go, yeah, you're still not at it. it that's still not it. But the Lord is working people to a point where he's going he's gonna to crush them in a good way. So we're six months in. The lead pastor comes and goes, I can't do this anymore. He says, I'm sick and tired of playing games. We got to figure this out. I think we should just preach through the Bible. And so we're like, well, okay, that sounds kind of weird. Seems kind of boring, but all right, fine. (laughs) So, you know, because our topical series, you know, went from like, you know, best sex ever to, uh, you know, Princess Bride series. And that was like on Song of Solomon. And then the next one was, you know, you're going to win. And then it was like every, just take, you know, take, take, take the, the, the boys, you know, the guys right now, the, 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 the hot shots of evangelicalism, take all their best series. That was what we were doing. Yeah. And so finally we're going to go through the gospel of John. Like what, <laughs> what are we going to call it? We're going to call it the gospel of John. Like what is, where's the cool name? You know, where's the, the all the bells and whistles. So we get to John five and, uh, Tony, my pastor and, and mentor at the time, says, you're up, man, here, you're going to preach John 5, 1 through 17. Um, and so I go to study it, and it's on healing, the healing at the pool of Bethesda. I'm thinking, this is great. I'm a hen. I got healing nailed. Like, I know healing. Mm-hmm. I don't know much else, but I know healing. Mm-hmm. And so he throws me a commentary and says, this will help keep the train on the tracks with, with some of the stuff in there, um, you know, have a good study, all that. And it is a burgundy John MacArthur commentary and so i'm like whatever like it doesn't click that john MacArthur um and my uncle had had their their fair share of differences and that my uncle once on tbn said he wishes he could blow his 
he had a Holy Spirit machine gun and he could blow MacArthur's head off. That was like the wow. peak of the, the cause. Oh yeah. It was like the, the peak of, uh, of the controversy. And so it doesn't click. I'm reading and I'm going through John five and first Jesus heals one guy out of a multitude. And I'm like, what in the world? You, it's always God's will to God's will to heal everybody. What in the world? That's weird. So I make observations of the text like I've been taught to do. And I, and then all of a sudden Jesus heals him immediately. You keep walking down that text. And so I'm like, that's weird. And I remember like flashing in my mind, kind of these thoughts of, okay, that's no music, no jacket, no choir, no stadium, no fanfare, no like, Oh, you're limping still go keep believing in God will complete the healing or don't get around negative people. And God will finish what he started. You know, we used to tell people that because they weren't healed and they were limping still. Jesus heals this guy immediately. And then some verses later, he's carrying his pallet around. It's Sabbath. The Pharisees go, who told you you could pick up your pallet, walk around? Like, what are you doing? It's the Sabbath. And he goes, the man who healed me. And then John uses this Greek word that means basically the man didn't even perceive who Jesus was. So I'm now messed up because it says, and, and he didn't, for he did not know who it was who healed him. John records that. And I'm going, okay, how did you get healed if you didn't know who he was? If you didn't know who he was, how did you have enough faith in him to get your healing? Hmm. What, well, then what, how, did, how did the healing happen if there was no faith involved? And so I opened the commentary, and, and MacArthur tees off and says, you know, this is an example of God's sovereign healing power in action. And I'm going, oh, my goodness, this is Coach Hefner all over again, the sovereignty of God. And he, and he says, there, this is the cruelest lie of faith healers today, that the people they fail to heal are guilty of negative confession, unbelief, not enough faith. And I'm going, oh, man, that's me. That's me. That's what I believe and believed and taught. And so everything suddenly starts making sense. And not literally, but just to describe it pictorially for you, like it, it was as though scales were falling from my eyes. Like I begin to cry. Wow. Everything starts making sense. I'm like, God, you're sovereign and healing. I can't turn this into a formula. Sometimes there's people that you're moved with compassion by their faith. And like the woman with the issue of blood is like crawling the crowd to just touch you. And, and you're moved by her, 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 her passion, her faith, her, her understanding that you're the son of God. Yes. Even when Jesus says, turns and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. He calls her a familial term. Mm. I mean, powerful moments where there's this connection. Sure. But then there's this dude who's complaining at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus still healed them. He's sovereign over healing. You can't turn it into a formula and make it about one thing or the other to try to make God do what you say he can do. And so I'm, I'm just blown away. Uh, my, my, again, I'm crying right there in my study. I repented. I told him what I repent. I'm sorry. I'll never teach this about healing. I'll never teach this about the gospel. I will serve you. I'll preach the true gospel, the whole gospel. I'll study. I'll learn. I just want to serve you and be faithful. And so I repented of everything. Um, and then I ran over, kicked the door in on my pastor's door and basically told him like everything. And he goes, all right. So I became a PIT pastor in training. Um, I lost my title. I kept my job. Thank God. So I could still pay the bills, but I was like, you know, a youth helper and a, an intern, almost paid intern. And I began to serve. Our church made the turn because the pastor was also going through a lot. The Lord was dealing with him. So we went from being called, we were called Moment Church, very trendy, attractional. We suddenly became Mission Bible Church. Mm -hmm. And 
the Lord brought in. I mean, suddenly there was a plurality of elders. Men started going to seminary. Mm. Uh, I started going to Talbot, driving up the freeway to Biola, and then eventually we kept having babies. Um, and, and one of our staff guys found MBTS and uh, was telling me about it. And I was like, no, nah, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going to Talbot. You know, it's Talbot. And, uh, and he's like, I, think, I really think you should look at the MBTS. And so I did. And within a semester, um, that I was, that was it. I was at MBTS, um, finishing up my, my degree online, pastoral ministry, et cetera. Um, and that's like a seven year journey in, in a, uh, still a little long, but in like a, a 15 to 20 minute description. And that was it, man. The rest is history. Wow. Praise God, man. That is so encouraging. I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today walking through your story and uh, telling us both um, what it was like to be in that world and and have the mantle upon you again can't really even can't really even uh, weigh what that must have felt like for you growing up and then to have your world invaded by Jesus Christ and uh, and turned upside down in a very axe like way personally is, is just a beautiful story so Thank you for coming on, uh, City of God. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, you and I are actually going to keep talking. We're going to do another podcast. But before we completely wrap up, uh, just give us a quick word on the book you published about this story so listeners can find it and read it if they have not, and then also what you're writing right now. Yeah, so I wrote a book called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. You were the one who called me, and you said, you've got to put this in a book come on, let's go, and then do some teaching, help out, help on the issue. And so um, that was actually you. Um, and so, yeah, wrote the book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. Zondervan published it. And so you can pick that up at Amazon, um, like Target.com. It's kind of everywhere you would get a book. We have It's in versions like Audible as well, and then Spanish. And then I'm working on a book right now that's going to come out next year. And the book is titled More Than a Healer. He's not just what you, he's not what you want. He's what you need. And it's going to be a book about Jesus and that he is a healer and he yes. does heal. But there's so many other facets about who he is that we kind of shelf when we want that thing from him, you know, that healing or the breakthrough or what have you. And so it's going to be a book all about the other things that he is and be something that people can read, learn, also give to friends and family who, who get into kind of a one-trick pony Jesus, like heal me, heal me, bless me, bless me. And, um, and we're just going to make Jesus famous and make a really big deal about all of who he is as best as we can. So that'll uh, be coming out in 2021. That's great to hear. Uh, listeners, I very much encourage you to check out the books just mentioned. Of course, the one is already on the market. We're waiting for the next one. But uh, in, in God's kindness and God's sheer providence, he's really doing something. Uh, in our time. Prosperity gospel is hugely influential and sadly has entrapped many people in its false doctrine. And yet, God is also saving many people and he's bringing uh, men and women out of the prosperity gospel movement. Costi uh, has a testimony that shows that very powerfully. He shared that, by the way, in the film American Gospel, which is on Netflix. You can find it if you just search for American Gospel on Netflix. And, uh, and then I very much encourage you to pick up God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. And I'll even go so far as to say this as I conclude. I would encourage you to, to buy a few extra copies. Buy five copies, buy ten copies. 
uh, set up shop in your local Starbucks or your third place and, and share this book with people who you can strike up conversations with, perhaps who see that you're reading spiritual literature. If you see somebody reading an Osteen book or, or other texts like that, um, uh, graciously engage them, give them this book, and then pray for them that they'll be sprung from this movement as well. So thank you for, uh, for being on the podcast, Costi, and thank you listeners for tuning back in. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man.